Hello, old-timey, grimy listeners, and welcome to the very first historical true crime showcase, featuring brand new mini-episodes from a whole slate of truly stellar shows. Ghost Town, Lady Justice, True Crime Historian, Ye Old Crime, Dial a Crime, and of course, old-timey crimey. We hope you listen and enjoy. And after that, you should definitely subscribe and listen to all of the shows featured here. Links are in the show notes. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. It's old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are the podcast that gives you historical true crime because the good old days weren't always so good. Today, we're going to be talking about a really weird thing that rich people did back in the day. Just a note that this topic is centered around cruelty to animals, so there is that. But at the end, I have a little bit of catharsis putting my money where my mouth is. Literally. So stick around for that. We are going to be talking today about the blood sport of fox tossing, or as the Germans called it, Fuchsbrellen. Careful the language. (laughs) So this was big with upper class members of society in 17th and 18th century Europe. And it's pretty much exactly how it sounds. The goal was to toss a fox using a sling as high as you could. This was usually done in teams, sometimes like mixed partners, like like tennis, but horrible. And one article notes that the couple, if this was a couple's venture, would usually be courting. So how's that for a first date? Oh, I'll tell you what. Nothing gets you to second base like the splattered carcass of a small animal that's practically a dog. It's just such a turn on. I'll tell you what. I can't blame him. I'm surprised Barry White hasn't written a song. Well, I mean, you have to see if you have good chemistry with animal throwing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the process by which they did this, they had a closed field or arena with a a canvas screen around it, usually in the courtyard of a castle or a palace. So they're they're really classing things up here. It's I think of it sort of like the net used at hockey games to protect the lower rows of seats from being hit in the face by the puck. Except here it's to keep an angry wild animal from from hitting you in the face or escaping. But if you took part in this crap, you pretty much deserve an angry wild animal hitting you in the face. So Agreed. This also allowed the rulers to be spectators from high windows of the palace. So, you know, your kings, your queens, your lords, they could they could watch from above. And then in the actual field, you'd have the players from each team of two standing about 20 to 25 feet apart. And they would each hold a cord that ran to a sling midway between them. This is what happens whenever you don't marry outside your genetics. This is why the royal family just doesn't work. I'm saying inbreeding. This is the sport of inbreeding. Fox tossing. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't even try to disguise it with like a cutesy name. Oh, would you like to go do the furry rickets tonight? <laughs> you know what? Oh. They, had a, they had a lot of this back then. So I actually have a list of the horrible blood sports that was just common for them. Goose pulling, monkey baiting, bear baiting, bear whipping, octopus wrestling, which that actually might be kind of 
fun. I just really hope the octopus drowns the people. Cock throwing, badger baiting, drawing the badger. Not what I thought they were going to be, but that's okay. <laughs> Duck baiting, donkey baiting, uh, oh. a horrible game called, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Pato, which is basically polo on horseback, but you use a duck as the ball. No, why do these people hate ducks? I have ducks. They're wonderful creatures, even when they chase you and untie your shoes. I, I don't even understand, because I, I was looking through this list, and I'm like, what is wrong with people? Well, let's face yeah. it, bullfighting still goes on to this very day. Yeah, there's still a lot of cruelty out there. The only one of these sports I can get behind is octopus wrestling, and that's if you have a large octopus. I'm saying you should be able to wrestle any deep-sea animal that's larger than you. I think it would be hilarious to like go deep-sea fishing, pull out a shark or a sturgeon, and then have to pin it to the mat two falls out of three before you can mount and eat it. <laughs> That's definitely a, a nice mental picture you've painted there. So. I got a whole bunch of sports in the back of my head. Motorcycle pole vaulting on ice. <laughs> grenade golf. So, so you have the two people standing 20, 25 feet apart. And then the cross handle attached to a cord that ran to a sling that was midway between them. That sling was usually made of like canvas or a webbing. And it was called a prelgar or a preltuk or bouncing cloth. And it's, again, exactly what it sounds like. So a trumpet would sound, and then the foxes or other animals would be released onto this closed field, and they would run around as wild animals do. The, the Leicester Chronicle described in 1897 as the terrified foxes or other game went wildly about the enclosure, leaping onto the slings, the center of which rested on the ground, it behooved the tossers to jerk the animal into the air as forcibly as their strength permitted. So yeah, that, that happened. This was competitive. So you wouldn't necessarily just have one pair of people holding a sling between them. You would have all these pairs lined up on the field holding slings, players on either side, and whoever launched their animal the highest would win. Well, they would win the game. They were not winning at being decent human beings. Everybody's losing that game here. Everybody is a loser. A question, of course, is how high did the animals go? Well, the record is said to be 24 feet or seven and a half meters. Well, I mean, it depends. I can't, I don't think you can judge like a full grown fox or an obese fox the same as a fox cub. Because yeah, I know I could get a fox cub up there about 35, 40 feet. <laughs> and then, of course, the thing is, is that once the animals hit the ground, they would generally die if they were not dead, if they were stunned. Sometimes they'd be clubbed, uh, but uh, sometimes they would coat the ground with sand or sawdust so as to get multiple tosses out of a single animal. Jesus, this is depressing. I actually uh. have an eyewitness account. The Swedish envoy, Isaias Pufendorf. I'm not kidding. That's a fun name. Yeah, he, he witnessed a fox tossing contest held in Vienna in March of 1672. And he was surprised to see the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I joining the court dwarves and boys in clubbing to death the injured animals. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of hardcore cruelty here just all around. This is like some bloody version of the safety dance video. <laughs> oh, God. Also, number was important. The, you know, the team who threw the most animals would also win some honors. And the Leicester Chronicle reported that the rivalry between the separate couples gave an additional zest to the cruel amusement. The Yorkshire Herald reported that both practice and strength were required to become expert. 
And if it happened that a weak or clumsy cavalier had a strong and dexterous partner, he would find himself jerked off his feet far oftener than the fox was tossed. So there is that. At least some people were, like, ending up face in the ground. I'm glad for that, and I hope they got mauled. So, yeah, as we said, this is basically a sport for the upper classes because they have nothing better to do, apparently. Sometimes they did this as, like, a masquerade ball where they would get super dressed up and then they would also dress up these poor creatures in, like, cardboard and tinsel. So it was more festive. Yeah, they would do that. And sometimes they would dress the, the animals up as people that they didn't like, unpopular people, political opponents. And one time they did this with hares. And they did dress them up all as musical instruments, quote, so that at one time the air seemed filled with violins, guitars, trombones, and drums. That died. It seems so whimsical. and Yeah, that died. It seems so whimsical until they hit the ground and die. And then it's less whimsical. And not at all whimsical, we could say. You know what you could have done? Just thrown some guitars up in the air. <laughs> yeah, do that. King of Poland, Augustus II, also known as Augustus the Strong, he threw a fox tossing contest and introduced the game to the Saxon court. He reigned in the end of the 17th and beginning of the 18th century, and he really liked to try to live up to his name. He liked to break horseshoes with his bare hands. Damn. And, well, it was also said that he could hold a fully equipped cavalryman on the palm of his outstretched hand. What sort of toxic goo did he get exposed to? Augustus had a weird taste in the animals that he wanted to toss. At one contest, he did 34 boars, which terrified the noble ladies because that's a fair fight in my mind. Well, and the boars were really dangerous because they could get stuck on the hoops of their skirts. And that actually seemed to be an attraction to the people who decided to incorporate boars. It was... Uh, to the terror of the noble ladies among whose hoop skirts the wild boars committed great havoc to the endless mirth of the assembled illustrious company. Then after the boars were released, the cavaliers had to protect the ladies, although they had to do this using their rapiers, which were not really super effective in this effort. So sometimes their efforts ended in their own bloodletting quote, to the great hilarity of the sovereign master. I think we can all agree that these people getting hurt is okay. It's fine. We're yeah. okay with it, right? The same like contest a... with the boars, though? Three wolves as well. Yeah. So, Amber, you had some more about Augustus. Yes, Augustus II was such a show-off. He actually would show his strength at these fox-tossing contests by holding the end of his sling with one finger with two grown men tugging on the other to show how strong he was. I do think a lot of Augustus might have been exaggeration to prop up his ego, probably. People would, of course, die. <laughs> more than one, quote, more than one tosser was marked for life by the claws of a wildcat or the tusks of a young boar. And I would like to state that I was curious if the, the, the British insult tosser came from this. And no, it doesn't. And that's all I'm going to say about that matter. They would release wildcats onto the field. And that's, that was not a good idea. If they didn't claw someone to death, then they would be pretty useless for the tossing slings because they would cling to them with their claws and then not launch. After all of this, especially when it was masquerade time, there would be a parade of all the participants in their costume walking away from the blood-drenched field where they just killed tons of animals. For instance, 
at Augustus's fox tossing party in Dresden, 687 foxes, 533 hares, 34 badgers, and 21 wild cats were involved in that. So that's a freaking lot. So yeah, they would celebrate this by having a parade or they would have a play in which they would act as gods and goddesses because them exerting their power over the natural world in the most cruel way apparently wasn't enough for their gigantic egos. And it's really interesting that they would waste game so much because it was really precious. There's a note from the Yorkshire Herald. Poachers were sewn up in the hide of the poached deer, then torn to pieces by their sovereign master's pack of hounds. That was the punishment for poaching. They would also have this whole presentation ceremony when there was going to be a hunt for a stag and they would pick out the royal stag that they were going to hunt that day. They would present the droppings to the sovereign lady first. Oh, thanks. I'm just thinking of like fancy restaurant and you order a bottle of wine and they bring it to your table and they present it to you. Like I'm thinking of it like that, but gross. These raisinets taste horrible. Oh, ew. So yeah, it was, uh, and then that, that hunt would happen and the foresters would have to track and kill the animal because if you think that any royalty is getting off their, their lazy bus to do it, you're wrong. And uh, if they failed to find it, then their lord would beat or kill them. But as far as fox tossing was concerned, it may have come about because of ancient superstition. There's this idea that maybe the fox represented the winter spirit and you killed it by tossing it into the air and thus welcomed spring. But there's a difference between ancient tradition and just flat out cruelty. And as the New York Sun assured its readers in 1890s, cavaliers and noble ladies often did many things in those days, much worse than tossing wild beasts in the air by means of straightening webs. Oh, I'm glad they did worse. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, isn't that nice? So in order to have a little catharsis from this, I am donating to my local humane society because I feel like something needs to be done for animals right now. So I am doing that. I'm hitting donate now and something went wrong. Oh my God. Why is this my life? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I clicked the button and it said, please wait. And now I have donated to the Humane Society of Cambria County and I feel a little bit better (laughs) about all of that. And oh, by the way, if you can't donate money, you can donate, you know, stuff around your house. A lot of shelters have wish lists of the things that they need. And so you can do that. Just, you know, go to their website, their Facebook, whatever. Better than that. Go up there and find yourself a new fuzzy friend. You could also just not throw foxes. That would be good, too. We definitely promote not throwing foxes on our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We really, really hope that you enjoyed the showcase. You can find us on any podcast platform that you use. And we have tons of episodes for you to binge on. We hope you also enjoyed all the wonderful participants in this showcase. There's some great podcasts. Listen to all of them. And uh, bye. 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 I got my information from Top End Sports, Shivan O'Shea on Interestly.com, Wikipedia, The Leicester Chronicle, The Yorkshire Herald, and The Sun. All That's Interesting.com by Laura Martsuet, 
MarieGossip.com, AnimalLogic.ca by Rebecca Whitaker, and TopEndSports.com. My sources are AnimalLogic.ca, Wikipedia, WBUR.org, and SimonAndSchuster.com. Chris Garcia, and I've got two great passions in life. The first is calling people on the phone. The second, telling true crime stories to the unsuspecting. But here's the thing, I'm kind of squeamish at the sight of blood, so I tell non-violent true crime stories. Stories of con men, tax fraud, weird weirdness, and of course, art theft. You can find Dial-A-Crime, my wonderful podcast where I record these things that I do on all the major and a few of the minor podcast apps. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, Player FM, Podcast Land World Villainburg, and others. And you know, if you would like to get a call from me to tell you a nonviolent true crime story, just drop a line to Dialacrime, D-I-A-L-A, C-R-I-M-E at gmail.com, G-M-A-I-L dot C-O-M. And maybe we can set up a time when I can tell you one of those stories that I love to tell so much. It's a compulsion. Anyhow, I hope you enjoy this mini special edition of Dial-A-Crime. Thanks for listening. Hello. Your call cannot be taken at the moment, so please leave your message after the tone. Hey, this is Chris. Just calling to leave a message and tell you a little story. Yeah, so you ever heard of the Mona Lisa? It's one of the most famous paintings in the world. It's in the Louvre. It's incredibly important historically because Leonardo said it was one of his most amazing paintings. He, I believe he actually used the word amazing. Well, the French or Italian version of amazing. It's got that smile that is enigmatic, and it's beautifully done. And there are actually more than one version of it. There are actually cover paintings of it, hundreds of them. One of the most important paintings in the world wasn't even a painting. It was just a print with a mustache, and it says, Eleo. Uh, roughly in French, which means she has hot pants. But one of the reasons it's the most well-known painting in the world is because it was stolen in 1911. And this is the least sexy heist ever. There was this guy, Vincenzo Perugia, and he used to work at the Louvre. He actually did uh, install these four iron pegs that the frame of the Mona Lisa was hanging on. Well, one day in the beautiful month of... August 1911, he just walked right in wearing a white smock like all the rest of the folks at the Louvre at the time, which is a very good argument against having dress codes. So he walked in with everyone else, and he milled around in the Salon Carré for a while, and everybody else went around their job, and it was a Monday, which is important. Museums are closed on Monday because they're superstitious. And so, and everyone was walking around, he just headed out. And when he was alone 
in the salon, he lifted the painting off the peg and he walked to a stairwell, which is a service stairwell. And he took the picture out of the frame. He removed it from its backing and he put his smock over it. But the problem, the door was locked from the other side. He couldn't get out. Think of how simple that is. All he had to do was wait for everyone to leave the room, take it off the pegs. He had a small roll of tools, apparently, and he pulled it off and he walked out a door into a side stairwell. Nothing fun like no descenders, no high-tech plan. He didn't even go at night. He went in the middle of the freaking morning. He didn't even wear really a disguise, unless you count a white smock as a disguise. So he had covered the painting with his smock, and he actually took apart the doorknob. The only alarm system to have were pull, pull bell systems. And you would pull the bell, and that would start the ringing like an old school bell. But if there was no guard to see you do it, there was no one to pull the bell. No cameras at that point. It was too early. But he had taken apart the doorknob in that stairwell. And he couldn't get out still. He was stuck. But luckily, another employee came in, saw that he was having problems. He said, hey, can you let me out? And he let him out into the main room. And with the Mona Lisa wrapped in his smock, he walked out the front door just the same way he came in. Simple. So simple. But what was Perugia's reason for doing it? And that's kind of a gray area. There are the arguments that... He was part of a syndicate that then created copies of it. And the the most famous, I guess it's a conspiracy theory technically, is that he was working with a group that was going to make six copies and then sell them as authentic. And the name that keeps getting mentioned is Eduardo de Valferiano. He was an Argentinian con man and he'll get his own episode someday. And the legendary former... Yves Chaudron, 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 was made six copies, which he painted. Supposedly had a way to replicate craquelure, the sort of the cracks in the paint. And it's almost impossible to do. There is a couple of problems. Uh, one, of course, they're 900% sure that the original is in. Of course, they would say that. But examination of existing photographs from before and after do seem to indicate that it's the same painting. Second one is there's no great evidence of the existence of Valfierno or Chaudron. It's possible there are other references to Valfierno and another that are actually possible variations on the spelling and pronunciation. Uh, Chaudron is almost certainly a real person, but is probably an amalgamation of two or three people, possibly a house name. The idea that duplicates were made and since sold around the world is potentially possible, but they've never seen the light of day. And especially when you've got the things like the most recent uh, Salvador Mundi selling for, you know, half a billion dollars, you'd imagine one or more of those would come onto the market. But what happened with the Mona Lisa after is amazing. Perugia took it and he took it back to his Parisian apartment and it sat there. He had a little compartment made under his stove, supposedly. But after a while, he went back to Italy. And one of the arguments that for why he did it and why he technically said he did it is that he wanted to repatriate the great Italian masterpiece. There are a couple of problems. The fact that Napoleon did loot two-thirds of the stuff that's in the Louvre would point to the fact that you could expect any major Italian Renaissance work to have been stolen. This one, in fact, was purchased by Francois Premier, who was Leonardo's great benefactor and supposedly close friend. Uh, and Francois Premier legit purchased the painting. So it's not actually a looted artifact. Now, one thing I've said many times is that even the truest patriot 
still needs to pay their rent. And once Perugia returned to Florence, Italy, he needed money. So he made some connections to sell the Mona Lisa. And one of the groups he connected was an art dealer at the Uffizi Gallery, which is one of the most famous galleries in Florence, which, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to make a contact, he's there who I'm going to contact. And they caught him there. Now, the funny thing is they had actually interviewed him because he had worked at the Louvre. They interviewed all the Louvre workers of the past, like, couple of years, I think. And they bought his story that he was working somewhere else at that point. Let this be a lesson to have good time clocks. What happened afterwards, once they restored it, they showed it at the Uffizi Gallery, which is the first time it had shown in Italy in centuries, I think, or possibly ever. And it, from there, it took on a life of its own. It became the most important painting in the world because of the massive amount of coverage and this ridiculous story. This story is ridiculous. This never should have happened. Even in the early 20th century, you should not have been able to just walk out of a museum with a painting under your smock. But the Mona Lisa, La Gianconda, as it's known as in other languages, that is almost certainly the most valuable painting in the world. It was the highest insured painting ever uh, when it was last insured, when it did a brief tour, I believe, in the 70s, maybe the 60s even. It is probably, if we're ever to sell, and it won't, a billion-dollar painting, and almost certainly the only billion-dollar painting. So yeah, that's what happened to the Mona Lisa, and there's a lot of questions as to whether or not the one that's up there is the original. It is. Just let's nip that in the bud. But yeah, so uh, give me a call when you get a chance and we will go over what we're going to do for dinner. Bye. I'm Jason. And we're the hosts of Ghost Town. We cover true crime, weird history, the paranormal, the haunted, and more. We live in Los Angeles, and we think you might like to hear our episode on the Battle of Los Angeles. The time when L.A. went to war with itself. This is Ghost Town. L.A.'s World War. I'm Rebecca Lieb. I'm Jason Horton. And this is Ghost Town. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes to travel some 25 miles, far slower than an airplane. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a white arc along the coastal area. In February 1942... Los Angeles was under attack. Oh boy. By Los Angeles. The what? Yeah. LA v LA. Who will come out victorious? LA. No, not LA. <laughs> Did not come out victorious. This was a, a very this is the a, an epitome of fail. I mean, 
Yeah, this is this is a, a mighty fail. This is a mighty. We love Los Angeles. We do we love it. We love it. If anyone loves it, we, we love, love it. it. But this was not a. I, I, this wasn't a great moment for the for the United States Mm-mm. as a whole, Mm-mm. and definitely not for Los Angeles. But you know, we talk about you know there wasn't during the the World Wars. Mm-hmm. There was never fought on U.S. soil. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, bomb shelters existed and mm-hmm. you know, the threat of nuclear war. And, sure. But in February 1942, right in dead center of World mm-hmm. War II, there was a very short battle. Yes. With, in Los Angeles, with the armed forces against essentially themselves. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a real, it's a dark, it's a dark point. In American history, and a pretty shameful one. Yeah, it's it's, and you'll find out the repercussions were. If there were no repercussions, if there was no no repros, no no, problem, no real collateral damage. I'd be like, Mm -hmm. you know what? Okay, idiots. Some of this is a little understandable. I Mm -hmm. I I get a little bit of it because there is a lot of panic, and you don't know. Like we're sitting here talking, we have the the hindsight of of saying, listen, nothing happened. Yeah. We were not bombed by the Japanese. We weren't invaded mm-hmm. by Germany. Everything turned out great mm-hmm. forever and ever and ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to the people living, there was a real threat and, yeah, and, and panic. a, real, a yeah. real panic. And I get that. And it's, I don't want to make light of that. I, it, it's understandable. And I'd probably be, you know. Yeah. We, if we were there, we'd be the first people to freak the fuck out. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd be like, can I hang out in your bomb shelter? And you're like, yeah, you're uh, like get the fuck out. Mine's being like, worked clean. You know what I mean? Like yeah, mine's like, I'd be like, like, this is garbage can of bomb shelter. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, should I hide in a fridge like an Indiana Jones in the temple of crystal skull? And I'll be like, what is that? And you're like, that doesn't even make sense. We're <laughs> yeah. not even, that's beyond our time. It's a horrible movie of ages forward. Yeah. And I'll be like, that's what you're doing with the time machine. You're just going to see Indiana Jones movies. You're like, just, yeah. just the crystal skull. <laughs> I was like, why just skip awful? You skip the good ones. No, no, I gotta see just that one. Excuse me. So following the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, so mm-hmm. 1941, a Japanese submarine. Now, this is sort of understandable. Mm-hmm. Surfaced and shelled oil installations just north of Santa Barbara on February 23rd. Mm. So they were kind of dumping Japanese, yeah. like made it to U.S. soil. That's scary. Mm-hmm. That is scary. I get it. That's I get scary. it. I get it. And the U.S. was on, you know, high alert. Yeah. On the evening of February 24th, 1942, the city's air raid warning announced the approach of hostile aircraft, which they're probably not used to hearing. No. It exists. I mean, again, these are very alarming things to experience. Naval intelligence instructed units on the California coast to brace themselves for potential mm-hmm. Japanese attack. Mm-hmm. Shortly after 2 a.m. on February 25th, military radar picked up what appeared to be an enemy 120 miles west of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Air, air raid sirens sounded and a citywide blackout was put into effect. Scary. Yeah. Within minutes, troops had manned anti-aircraft guns and began sweeping the skies with searchlights. Mm-hmm. About an hour later, the shooting started. Yeah. Bumbling in the darkness. Following reports of an unidentified object oh, in the God, skies. Yeah. Troops in Santa Monica. This is weird to say, right? Troops in Santa Monica. Yeah. I say a lot of things in Santa Monica. I say sandwiches in Santa Monica. I say the pier in Santa Monica. Troops in Santa Monica. No. No, unless it's Girl Scout troops, which it isn't. It is not. No, I checked. <laughs> Unleashed a barrage of anti-aircraft and 50 caliber machine gun fire. Mm-hmm. Before long, many of the city's other coastal defense weapons had joined in. 
Gun crews at Army Post along the coastline fired 1,433 rounds. Wow. At nothing. Wow. At Into the night. Nothing. Jesus. Of course, there was total panic. There was a claim that a Japanese plane crash landed in the streets of Hollywood. All right. I'm surprised there hasn't been a alternate future version of this. Yeah. A la The Man in High Castle. Something like that. Yeah. The Japanese have taken over downtown Hollywood Chinese theater. The next day when the Secretary of Navy said there had been no air raid, no enemy planes, it was just a case of the jitters. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine being explained that? This also kind of, as you're talking, reminds me of after 9-11. And I, I didn't live in Los Angeles at the time, but my uncle worked on the Disney lot. And everyone at the Disney lot was like on high alert that they were going to be bombed. So obviously people were embarrassed and outraged. The army was accusing of shooting up an empty sky. Authorities arrested 20 Japanese Americans for allegedly trying to signal a non-existent aircraft. No. Oh, my God. And also the history of Uh, uh, Asian Americans. Well, yeah, but also specifically in uh, California – Asian immigrants here have been given the, just the worst deal. So, like, where they're like, ah, quick, you can get some uh, Japanese people to pin this on. Awful. Yeah, you were signaling this aircraft that did not exist that we were shooting at. Yeah, and then just a bunch of people get taken in. The Japanese military later claimed they'd never flown an aircraft over the city during World War II. Why would they? One aircraft over Hollywood. And of course, and the picture is a pretty famous picture of what this scenario was. And it's basically just searchlights in the sky. Mm-hmm. And it looks, you know, people claim that's like it was a UFO. The most logical explanation is that trigger happy servicemen and rudimentary radar systems combined to produce a false alarm. In you know? 1983, the Office of Air Force History outlined the events of the L.A. air raid and noticed the meteorological balloons that had been released prior to the barrage mm-hmm. to help determine wind conditions. So it was like a weather balloon. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, people say, oh, yeah, sure, everything's a weather balloon, but... No, in this case, it's a also like, why do you think weather balloons exist? They exist to be in the sky and monitor the weather. Like, uh, okay. Ugh. Their lights in silver color could been would have been triggered the alert. Once the shooting began, it was disorienting. But the searchlights, smoke, anti-aircraft flak... And led gunners to believe they were firing on enemy planes, even though there were none actually present. Mm-hmm. And the photo, which we put on Instagram, which is a sure. ghost town pod, that the LA Times posted, it was cited by UFOlogists and conspiracy theorists that it was an evidence of an extraterrestrial visitor. And it just shows searchlights focused on what looks like an alien spaceship. Mm-hmm. But Really, it's just lighting up the sky, and what the LA Times had to do is they had to modify the photo because the black and white, the contrast, mm-hmm. you couldn't really see it. So they're essentially yeah. so they're just kind of blowing it out, and it just makes everything look like yeah. it has a glow. Do you think uh, UFO people and conspiracy theorists are, are, are like they look at a picture that could maybe be a UFO, and they're like, no, nah, I don't think it is. <laughs> they're like, no, not this. Do they but, ever reject photos? But my the book that I'm putting out. <laughs> It's definitely real. Okay, that's I can what you see should that. buy. I can yeah. see that. I just or you should go to my YouTube channel. Usually, like this, this weird Polaroid that has nothing in it is evidence of UFOs. But there were casualties, like I said before. Mm-hmm. Three residents were killed in automobile accidents of just people driving, just going haywire. Awful. Well, the, I think the scariest thing is that I'd be scared. Out, yeah. Really, where it's like you're in the dark, you're bumbling around. Maybe you hear things. Maybe you don't. Like it's terrifying. Two others died of heart attacks. Okay. 
and there was a lot of collateral property damage. And there was a couple of movies made. The 1979 movie, 1941, was had loosely based mm-hmm. on this. And the 2011 film, Battle Los Angeles, was also loosely based mm-hmm. on the Battle of Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys hear helicopters? They're coming for us. Yeah. They're coming no. for us now. Now they're just going to pass over us. Well, that's true. We don't care. <laughs> lovelies and welcome to a little bit of lady justice true crime lady justice is a weekly uk true crime podcast that covers fascinating cases from both the past and the present my name is Chantel. in this minisode we're going back to 1954 in london and it's called monster in law On July 29, 1954, the Christoffi family did as they normally did, a beer to quiet excitement and hesitation in the air. They were a normal, happy family living in a well-to-do part of London, in a home on South Hill Park, Hampstead, and the three young children living at the address were a flurry of anticipation for their upcoming trip to Germany with their mother in the coming days. At 8pm that Wednesday, Stavros Christoffi was to bid his wife Hella, their three children, and his mother Stilau a good night as he left to go to work as a waiter in Café de Paris, a popular nightclub that was notoriously bombed whilst full of patrons during the Blitz. Hella put the children to bed with ease, did her evening chores, and completed some preparations for the upcoming trip which was to visit her family, as she was originally a German who had moved to England before the outbreak of World War II. She had met Stavros when she was working as a shop assistant, just after Stavros had settled in the UK from Cyprus, a Mediterranean island. This trip had also given the couple some time to plan what was to happen for their family next. The year before, Stavros's mother had come to visit the couple and their children, having not seen her son for 12 years and never meeting the rest of her family. She arrived at their door, unable to speak English, and within seconds had decided that she must take the helm of the household. Stavros explained to his wife that his mother could be a difficult personality. She had a tough life being born in 1900 to a poor family in an isolated part of the island. She did not attend school and she was illiterate. He further explained that Stilau had been married at the age of 14 to his father, who was known as a poor man who could not provide much of an income, and he was to leave the family unit in 1925, with Stilau providing all the care for him growing up, and ensuring that he got an education. He agreed that she was headstrong, but over the next 12 months, he would have to concede that his mother was now becoming more than just a hindrance. The family had welcomed the 53-year-old woman to stay with them in their home, but she picked at everything. The decor was not to her liking, the food was not correct, she didn't get enough attention, and lastly, Stilau was enraged by how Hella was mothering her grandchildren. She was upset that the children were not part of the Greek Orthodox Church, and had no understanding of the Greek language, and were acting in a way she found to be forgetting their heritage by assuming a British-style life. 
The only person to blame for this was not her son, but the woman he was married to, and she was clearly not good enough. This exploded many times between July 53 and 54, despite Heller and Stilau unable to communicate verbally. These were so dramatic that Stilau was to move out of the family home on three separate occasions. The trip in which Heller was to take with the children gave Stavros some time to try and convince his mother to return to her homeland. Hella had given the ultimatum to her husband, and he had chosen her. Unknown to either of them, Stilau knew of their plan, and she was pissed off. As dusk descended that summer evening, Hella began to draw a bath, closing the door to the bathroom, a room located at the end of the downstairs kitchen. She undressed and was unaware that just metres away, her own mother-in-law was picking up an ash pan from the stove a heavy metal tray, and was creeping towards the door. When Stilau heard Hella turn each tap off, she strengthened her grip on the door handle, opened the door without hesitation, and lifted the ash pan above her, slamming it down, aiming for her daughter-in-law's head. She did not miss, and Hella was to drop on the floor of the room naked and unconscious. Upstairs, the children did not stir, and Stilau dragged the 37-year-old mother towards the kitchen. When there, she wrapped her neck with one of the children's scarves and started to strangle her. She then swung open the door and started to move Hella just past the outdoor steps and left her alone while she collected newspapers and liquid paraffin from inside the home. Dipping strips of newspaper in paraffin and placing them on and around the body, she covered almost all the flesh before lighting a sheet and Hella was engulfed in flames. There was a witness to this a neighbour by the name of John Young, who had been tending to his dog at around midnight and saw the flames. He had originally called out, yet received no reply, so he peeked through the fencing to see what he believed to be a mannequin on fire, and still out tending to it. Thinking that the fire was under control, he returned to his home without reporting anything. Within an hour, however, Stilau was to lose control of the fire, and with fear for the three young children, she ran out onto the street and flagged down a passing car containing Mr. and Mrs. Burster and cried out, Please come, fire burning, children sleeping. After the alarm was raised and the fire staff quickly put the fire out, they looked at the scene before them and was getting very little explanation from the only witness due to the language barrier, so they called the police. Officers from Scotland Yard attended the scene and noted that, quote, smoke was still rising from the charred clothing, and in areas around the bathroom and kitchen, there were bloodstains, hastily wiped up, yet noticeable. They would later discover the ash pan covered in blood on the inside and out, and mysteriously, Heather Christoffi's wedding ring missing. It was later found wrapped in transparent paper and placed inside an ornament in Stilau's bedroom. Salau was taken to Hampstead Police Station and the lead investigator, Detective Superintendent Leonard Crawford, would begin the 20 hours of questioning with an interpreter. She would state that she had discovered Hella on the steps outside, expanding, I wake up, smell burning, go downstairs, Hella burning, throw water, touch her face, not move, run out, get help. The police, knowing the tensions between the mother-in-law and Hella, believed there was much more to that story, and asked why the wedding ring that was most certainly on the finger of Hella had ended up concealed in her bedroom. Silau said that she thought it was a curtain ring. 
Pathologist Francis Camps would state that the fractured skull would have come from an object such as the blood-stained ash pan, and the official cause of death was strangulation by ligature. When charged, Stilau denied knowing anything regarding the post-mortem burnings, stating, I did not make use of any petrol, but some few days previously some petrol spilled on the floor. I did not pay any attention to it. I stepped on it, and probably the smell was a result of that petrol. From this story, I know nothing more. Her trial was to be held at the Old Bailey in London beginning October 28, 1954. Her defence, led by Mr Fardy, wanted to offer a plea of insanity. However, Stilau denied to allow this, pointing out she was not a, quote, mad woman. It took the jury less than two hours to find her guilty. An appeal was lodged, yet failed, but time was allowed to see if examinations made by three doctors would find her suffering from a mental illness. While she sat on death row, at her request, a Greek Orthodox cross was placed on the wall of the execution chamber. The night before the execution was filled with hurry and excitement to many. In the West End, reporters gathered at the famous Café de Paris to try and catch a glimpse of the lone parent of three, Stavros Christophe. They were to see the man serving customers as normal, bar the black crepe armband he wore in memory of his wife be it on the eve of her killers, his mother's death. He was to make a short statement to the press, stating, I cannot find it in my heart to forgive my mother. The word mother has become a mockery to me. Across town, a small group of MPs went to lobby the then Home Secretary for clemency at the House of Commons, stating that the Chief Medical Officer at Holloway Prison had reason to believe that she was not fully responsible for the crime. They were not to be successful, however, and come the morning of December 15, 1954, at 9am, Stilau Christophe was executed via hanging at Holloway Prison. Her son refused to attend. This was likely not only due to her murdering his wife and the mother of his children, but because she would dictate letters to Stavros whilst in prison, blaming him for the murder and absolving herself of any responsibility for her actions. She ended her letters with a nod to her grandkids, with each time signing off with the quote, Kiss the children for me. The day after the execution, the report by the chief medical officer, Dr. T. Christie, would record that the clinical picture of non-systemized dilution mental disorder, and that due to this, Stilau did not know the difference between right and wrong. That same day, another revelation came when it was announced that almost 30 years previously, in 1925, Stilau had been on trial for murder. This murder took place in her hometown, yet the exact location has been lost due to the passage of time. She was placed on trial for murdering her own mother-in-law after a series of disagreements. Two of her friends held down the woman whilst Miss Christophe rammed a piece of wood aflame down the woman's throat. Each of the three women covered from one another and she was acquitted due to lack of evidence. And that's the story of Stilau Christophe. With that, go be good people, go be kind, go be safe and most importantly, go be happy.
Hello and welcome to a special episode of Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. We get to do something fun and short and exciting. Yes, we are doing something different this week. We have been invited to take part in the first ever historical true crime podcast showcase with a lot of other fun and amazing podcasters in the history realm. We are honored to be included in this list of amazing historical true crime podcasts. And let's get started. Yeah, I'm excited for friendship. It's like, I feel like now that we're in the showcase, it's like, look at, we have friends now. We have other friends. Yeah, my podcast friends in a historical context. They like us. So for this week's special mini episode, I'm going mm-hmm. to be sharing with you the origins of three blind mice. That's really cute, but it's probably going to be mostly disturbing. It's going to be bad. Awesome. Okay, let's do this. Let's do it. All right. Information was pulled from the following sources. A 2018 A Bit About Britain blog post by Mike. A 2010 Education.com article by Natalie Kidd. A 2005 History Today article by Richard Cavendish. AllNurseryRhymes.com. Atlas Obscura and Britain Express. And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. Just a heads up. I don't know if they'll be in the show notes of the other shows that we're taking part in with this showcase, but they will be in the show notes of our podcast at yieldcrimepodcast.com. Just in case. For those unfamiliar with the rhyme, this is what it sounds like. Three blind mice, three blind mice. See how they run, see how they run. They all ran after the farmer's wife who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as three blind mice? I could have sang it, but I mean... So the origin of this rhyme dates back to 1609, when Thomas Ravenscott published it in a music compilation entitled Deuteromelia. What a sophisticated title for a really silly rhyme. Well, that was the compilation of the songs that it was part of. So I don't think that Prebiomelis was called Deuteromelia. You know what I meant. You got there. It's generally believed that the source material for this rhyme dates back to 1555, when Queen Mm. Bloody Mary I of England executed three Protestant clergymen for heresy by burning them at the stake. Why not make a cute little rhyme about it later? Yep. It's adorable. Awesome. The men in question were the Bishop of Worcester, Hugh Latimer, the Bishop of London, Nicholas Ridley, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. They are just three of the 280 people burnt at the stake for heresy between 1553 and 1558 during the reign of Queen Mary I. Damn. But at least they got a they got a rhyme. Yep. And all were punished for not adhering to the Queen's orders to practice Roman Catholicism. Gotta love religious hate. Yep. It always ends well. It does. Mm-hmm. All three men were great men of reform, especially in Protestantism. Thomas Cranmer, in fact, ushered in the age of Reformation almost immediately upon his appointment as the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he annulled the 24-year marriage of Henry VIII to Catherine of Aragon in order to validate his new marriage to Anne Boleyn. Oh. Hi, Auntie. Yeah. We're related. (laughs) Nicholas Ridley, and in small part Thomas Cranmer, was targeted in particular for his part in trying to secure Lady Jane Grey as the new monarch in place of Mary after preaching that she and her sister were illegitimate and unfit to rule. Whoa. So they just were trying to break all the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Anarchy. Yeah. Monarchy. (laughs) 
From as early as 1554, Nicholas and Thomas shared a cell in the Tower of London for treason with Cranmer and a preacher named John Bradford. In March of 1554, all three men were moved to the Bacardo Jail in Oxford to await trial. What happened to the other guy? I think he died. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think he was killed. I mean, pretty safe to assume, but... If they were all in there for bad. treason, it's pretty safe to assume he was killed. Sorry. In January 1555, the three men were brought to the Church of St. Mary the Virgin to be tried and encouraged to disavow their Protestant beliefs. They vehemently refused and were ultimately found guilty for not believing in transubstantiation. For those who don't practice Catholicism, transubstantiation is the change that occurs so bread and wine become the literal body and blood of Christ, which is also known as the Eucharist. And this is a practice that is done during communion. In Catholicism, the Eucharist is, quote unquote, the real presence, which is the belief that Christ is actually there. And to deny that, such as in the case of Protestants, would be at that time considered heretical. Damn. Okay. So the men were held at the Bacardo jail at the North Gate, and Thomas Cranmer was forced to watch as Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burnt at the stake on October 16, 1555. Both men had small bags of gunpowder tied around their necks in an act of humane mercy. Oh, yeah, because yeah, that wouldn't have been painful at all, and you probably still would be alive long enough to feel that. Yeah. Being burned alive. Hugh succumbed to the smoke and died a painless death. Well, that's a mercy. Unfortunately for poor Nicholas, it took him much longer to die due to the fact that the packets of gunpowder failed to ignite, causing him to die in anguish as he cried out, I cannot burn, I cannot burn. By the time the gunpowder finally ignited, he was already dead. So he basically, instead of succumbing to the fumes or having the gunpowder packet like ignite and essentially like pseudo decapitate him or something mm -hmm. by like blowing Out up in force. his chest and stuff, he was just burnt to a crisp. Like he, he, he was just immolated before he succumbed. Cool. Yeah. What a great mind. Nicholas Ridley was 55 and Hugh Latimer was 67. Hmm. Thomas Cranmer, horrified by the deaths of his fellow clergy, appealed to the queen and recanted his beliefs, swearing his acceptance of the pope as the head of the church. The queen, proving her moniker of Bloody Mary, didn't believe he was quote-unquote sincere in the renouncement of his faith. So after losing his appeal, Thomas Cranmer was also burnt at the stake on the same spot on March 21st, 1556 at the age of 67. It's said that as they lit the branches, he thrust his right hand into the flames, which he deemed unworthy as he had used it to sign the recantation of his faith. So he was basically oh, saying... so he was trying to revert back before he died. Yeah. I hope that worked out for him. Yeah. Even though she has often been remembered as a villainous and cruel monarch, Queen Mary shouldn't be viewed as the only one who has committed misdeeds in this tale. Prior to their deaths, Hugh Latimer, for example, played a major role in seeing Catholic John Forrest, who was a confessor to Queen Catherine of Aragon, burnt at the stake under the reign of King Henry VIII, and even went so far as to preach a sermon at his execution. Dang, that's dedication. Thomas Cranmer aided in the conviction of John Frith, who was a Protestant, staunch believer in religious tolerance and a driving force in the Reformation, even though Cranmer would go on to become a member of the Protestant faith himself. In addition to that, the city of Oxford actually charged the cost of the bundles of sticks used to burn him at the stake to his own expense account. <laughs> An expense that the city tried to reclaim under the new Archbishop of Canterbury. 
Wow. So basically they're like, you're going to pay for the sticks that we're going to burn you with, guy. <laughs> I mean, what's he going to do with the money anyway at that point? Yeah. But it's, it's definitely another blow. Yep. That's for sure. Today, a cross on Oxford's Broad Street marks a spot where over 500 years ago, these men lost their lives during a time of religious persecution. The spot was originally part of the town ditch and has been preserved after workmen found bits of the stake and shards of charred bone at the spot. A Mm. memorial has been erected across the street at Balliol College that reads as follows, quote, opposite this point near the cross in the middle of Broad Street, Hugh Latimer, one time Bishop of Worcester, Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London, and Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, were burnt for their faith in 1555 and 1556, end quote. And if you go back to the rhyme itself, the farmer's wife is in reference to Queen Mary I, obviously, mm-hmm. who, thanks to her husband, King Philip of Spain, owned large estates of land, thereby in an obscure sense, making her a quote unquote farmer's wife. Clever. Further down the road, where Broad Street intersects with St. Giles, you can find the Martyrs Memorial, which commemorates the three men's deaths. Erected in 1838, the Victorian Gothic structure resembles a spire of a sunken cathedral. The design was inspired by the Eleanor crosses erected by Edward I in memory of his late wife, Eleanor of Castile. Designed by Sir George Gilbert Scott, who was one of the most important architects of the Victorian era. The monument includes a statue of Latimer facing west with his arms crossed over his chest, a statue of Ridley facing east, and a statue of Cranmer holding a Bible as he faces north. The memorial has the following inscription, quote, To the glory of God and in grateful commemoration of his servants, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, prelates of the Church of England, who near this spot yielded their bodies to be burned, bearing witness to the sacred truths which they had affirmed and maintained against the errors of the Church of Rome, and rejoicing that to them it was given not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. This monument was erected by public subscription in the year of our Lord God, 1841. End quote. So we're just going to ignore the fact that the only reason why they were Protestants was to uh, make divorces, illegitimate children into the monarchy. Yes. We're just going to dust over that. Yep. And now they're martyrs. Yep. It's all bad. It's all bad. <laughs> and that is the dark and twisted history of Three Blind Mice. Oh. I hate it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I hate it. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also mm-hmm. on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. You can find mm-hmm. us on YouTube by searching for yieldcrimepodcast. And you can also reach us anytime at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Yep. We hope you've enjoyed this little teaser of Yield Crime. And as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. I'm true crime historian Richard O. Jones. Thank you for inviting me to your hootenanny. I gave up the pressure cooker of daily newspaper journalism in 2013 and took up a life of true crime when I wrote a couple of books on historic murders. In researching these books, I fell in love with the way they used to write back in the day, so I started this podcast in 2016, hoping it would help me sell some more books. And 440 episodes later, I'm still cobbling together murder stories using passages from old newspaper accounts. 
The stories rarely contained a byline, so we can't put a name to them, but their reports are more narrative and more descriptive than anything I would have been allowed to write. Those nameless scribes were the pioneers of true crime, and this podcast is a way of honoring their contribution to the genre. True Crime Historian presents Yesterday's News, a weekly tale of the famous and forgotten scandals, scoundrels, and scourges of history told through vintage newspaper accounts from the golden age of yellow journalism. For this special episode, number 440 in our canon, we take a look at a unique method of execution devised by a Colorado sheriff in 1891. But if you think the method cruel and unusual, Wait till you hear the details of the crime. I'm true crime historian Richard O. Jones, and for your horror and indignation, I give you... Suicide on the Gallows. The criminal executes himself. Canyon City, Colorado. January 17th, 1891. James Joyce was hanged in the penitentiary here at 6.15 this evening for the murder of John Snooks in Denver on the 4th of last January during a drunken brawl. A new and novel plan was adopted in the execution whereby Joyce unconsciously committed suicide on the gallows, thereby relieving the warden of the disagreeable necessity of participating in the execution. This problem the machine effectually solved by means of a water gauge. This gauge consists of two buckets, one set above the other. When the cork is pulled out of the upper bucket, it pours its contents into the lower bucket and raises a float, which regulates a dial in the execution chamber. At the same time, the water foaming out of the upper bucket at the end of a specified time releases a ball weighing 29 pounds, which falls and pulls the trigger that lets the weight fall and jerks the victim into the air. The whole machine is set in action by a rod which connects in a platform standing in the center of the death chamber. When the prisoner came in, his hands were strapped behind his back. He was asked to step upon the platform. As he did so, the platform sank a little and set the terrible machine in the closet at work. Suddenly, snap, crash, the weight had fallen and the victim was dangling in the air with three feet and a half of vacancy beneath his foot. This is the simple but unique device which an officer of the prison devised to have the condemned convicts execute themselves. It will undoubtedly make a revolution in the manner of conducting execution. James T. Joyce was found guilty of one of the coldest-blooded murders in Colorado's criminal history. He killed John Snooks, a boy 20 years of age, on July 4, 1800. 
Joyce and Snooks were employees of the Argo Slaughterhouse and, with some other employees, had been celebrating the day by drinking while at work. They had set out to a neighboring saloon for a beer, carrying the liquor back in a bucket. The party had been drinking several hours when Joyce and others complained that Snooks was getting more than his share of the beer. A quarrel ensued, and young Snooks was run out of the place. He returned in a few minutes with an old empty musket and threatened the life of Joyce. The gun was taken away from him by those present, and the difficulty was supposed to be settled. But settled it was not, as was shown by the killing later on. Snooks came into the place where Joyce was at work skinning a sheep. Without hesitation, Joyce slashed away at young Snooks. The first stroke of the knife, which exclusive of the handle is about seven inches long and as delicate as a razor, and from constant sharpening has assumed the shape of a scimitar, caught Snooks above the left eye on the forehead and cut through the eye nearly down to the lip. A frightful gash, but the least horrible of the three given. Although he had already disabled Snooks, he kept on slashing. The second blow was a fearful one. It took Snooks right under the left armpit and was a sure cause of death. It made a gash five inches long, reaching the heart. It laid open the entrails to view, but even this blow, which would have killed Goliath immediately, did not satisfy. He dealt the slender young butcher a still more dastardly blow, striking him in the back of the head with the weapon horizontally and cleaving it down for several inches to the bone, the severed piece lying over the back like a great ugly flap. Snooks staggered but a few feet and dropped dead, while Joyce was secured and disarmed. The police were summoned and the murderer arrested while an angry mob of men were quickly gathering with threats of vengeance. The other workmen were so incensed that threats of lynching were made against Joyce and would have been carried out but for the timely arrival of Lieutenant Phillips, who took Joyce in custody and brought him to the city jail. He was not the least affected when the verdict was returned and displayed no emotion when sentence was passed. He was taken to the penitentiary two hours after receiving his sentence.